0: If you have a Bible, would you take it and turn to Isaiah chapter 62? Isaiah 62, which will be our text for this afternoon. If you're not sure where Isaiah is, you can just open up right in the middle of your Bible. Book of Psalms is probably where you land and you can head towards the right and you'll find the large book of the prophet Isaiah. We've been uh, in this prophet for some time now and plan to wrap up this series at the end of the year, the last Sunday here of, of 2021. Uh, this chapter is the final actually of, of three images of the coming perfect Zion, the, the glorious city of God that we're waiting for. And, and the, they show the, the results of the work of the anointed conqueror who is described at the beginning and the end of this section of, of chapters. As we've come to expect from Isaiah, there are a multitude of images and pictures to communicate the changes that God has brought and that he will bring in his people. And one of the key illustrations that he uses here in this chapter has to do with the Lord giving his people a new name. Giving someone a, a name is a fairly significant act. Of our seven children, Elaine is the only one that we named before she was born, um, It could be just that we're a little indecisive. Um, But I also think that we felt this weight of giving a child a name that he or she would have to have for the rest of his or her life. feels like a pretty big deal. In thinking about that, just consider the negative and the positive positive effects of of naming. And not just the, the names that you give to a newborn, but the names that were given throughout life. The oldest trick in the book of a bully is to call someone a name, to define someone by their, their faults or their weaknesses. All of us at one time or of another or another have been made fun of. We've been given a name. Um, some of us may still in fact feel the the hurt from that name. We've we've been shamed by someone else. Even if it wasn't a a formal name that someone actually called us, we we bear the scars of being named by someone as stupid or as ugly or as worthless. And for some of us, we've come to believe that we are failures or that we are weak or that we are despised because of what someone has, has said about us. But now think about the other end of the spectrum. Think about the names that are given to you by the people who love you of the ways that people identify you as adored or as, as cherished by them, as special, as uniquely blessed by God. Maybe, maybe your parents called you by a, a nickname of sorts. They're the only ones that called you that and it made you feel special in some way. Or maybe your spouse refers to you in sweet and loving ways that no one else is allowed to and no one else does. Maybe you have old friends and they call you by a nickname that you had in, in high school. And when you're around them, you just feel accepted and loved and you remember that, that friendship. Well, what if, the, what if the Lord had a name for us? What if our Heavenly Father gave us as his children a name? If the names of those who hate and those who love us can have deep influence on us, just, just think of how deeply the names that our Creator has given us could have on us. Just just think about the change that that could be wrought in us if we really believed the names that he gave to us, if we believed them to be true. I think in many ways, that's what Isaiah 62 is calling us to do. It says to us, live in the truth of the new name the Lord has given you. We'll use that as our big idea for today. Live in the truth of the new name the Lord has given you. for better or for worse, names shape us. And so many of us have chosen to be defined by the names given to us by others. We bear wounds from the past and from those who have shaped us by what what they have said about us. Or we find our worth only in the approval of others and the names that they call us, and so we're always seeking that out. But what if the thing that defined us and shaped us, that gave us our worth, that motivated how we live each day, what if that was what the Lord said of us as his children? What if we could let all of those other names that people call us fade into the background and by God's spirit, we were able to live in the truth of the new name that the Lord has given us? Well, today, let's think about what the Lord has done and what he's doing for his people and how his actions can change how we live. And let's begin that by reading Isaiah 62, Uh, The first nine verses describe what the Lord is doing in redemption and and how we will respond to that. And then verses 10 through 12 provide a summary and a conclusion for chapters 60 through 62. And as we read these, remember our, our big idea, live in the truth of the new name the Lord has given you. Isaiah 62, beginning in verse 1. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. But you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the days and all the night, they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies. And foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. But those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord. And those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Go through Go through the gates, prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out a city not forsaken. Beautiful passage of scripture there in Isaiah 62. And as we think on this big idea from that chapter, live in the truth of the new name the Lord has given you, let's first think about verses one through five and consider the zeal of the Lord on behalf of his people. That's what we'll call these first five verses, the zeal of the Lord on behalf of his people. In other words, God is, is shown to be committed to and working mightily for the good of his people. He's, he's zealous for his people. As we step into this passage, we need to first ask, who is speaking in verse one? Who is the, the I? For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. We could, and some say that it's Isaiah speaking, but as we read further, it seems to become clear that it's the Lord himself who is speaking. We might even say that it's the Trinity speaking, drawing from Isaiah 61.1. Uh, Mark pointed out to me last week that in that verse, Isaiah 61, one, Jesus, the Messiah, speaks of the filling of the Spirit and the anointing of the Lord to accomplish redemption. So all three persons of the Godhead are there. The entire Godhead is at work in salvation, and here, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit say that they will not rest until the people of God are shining forth in bright light righteousness what a beautiful term they will not rest they will keep working until it's accomplished the zeal of the lord then is to act on behalf of his people to make them righteous and to save them as isaiah's hearers sat on the edge of exile they were reminded that the lord would not rest until he rescued them and made them his holy people another way to say this is that the lord is for his people If we are his through faith in Jesus, our God is working on our behalf. When we feel like God has left us, when we feel sometimes like God is actively working against us in life, we can know that in fact the opposite is true, that he is always working for his people and he will not stop doing so until we are fully redeemed that redemption and the results of the Lord's zeal are then spelled out in verses two through five. Verse two looks like a summary of verses three through five. It focuses on the the glory of God's people shining forth and drawing in the nations and the new name that God will give to his people. Look at verse two again. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give Verses three through five then expand on these ideas as the Lord tells his people that they're going to be a crown and a bride. First, the Lord says, you shall be a crown. That's in verse three. Not that they will wear a crown, but that they will be a crown, a beautiful crown covered in jewels and held in the hand of the Lord. That's the picture. One commentator, Motyer, writes this. To be in his hand is to be kept, guarded, and upheld. To be a crown is to be that which expresses kingliness. Not the exercise of royal power, but the possession of royal worth and dignity. The Lord's people will be the sign that he is king. For we who are in Christ, the Lord has made us his own and is making us into a crown that announces to all of the kings and all of the nations that he alone is the ruler of of the earth. Salvation is not about the glory that we receive in salvation but about the glory that God the, the glory of God that we reflect because of salvation. Not the glory that we receive but the glory that we reflect as this crown and the beauty of our righteousness and our status as children of God is to declare the glory of our God in this world and point to that great day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we live, so, so the question then, if we're thinking about being a crown is, do we live in such a way that we show the beauty of our God and of his salvation in this world? Do our lives announce that he is king of our hearts and that he is king of the universe? The Lord says that his people, because of his work, will be a crown in his hand. And then in verses four through five, he says, you shall be a bride You shall be a bride. This status as a bride is brought out in the the new names given by the Lord to his people. Think about what they had been called. They had been called forsaken and desolate by all the nations around them. And they probably believed it. They appeared to be deserted by the Lord as they went into exile and their land was, was barren because they were far away from it. And while it was the Lord who had done these things to them, who had sent them away from their land and into exile, he had not forsaken them. Even in Babylon, he was with them. And there would come a day when he would restore them and declare that they were no longer forsaken and they were no longer desolate. They would no longer be called by such names, these names by the nations. Those names would no longer define them because the Lord would call them by new names. Did you catch the beauty of those names? My delight is in her and the land will be called married. God's people and the place they live in will be transformed. Motyer says of verse five that it's two parts describe the marriage and then the honeymoon of the Lord and his people. (laughs) So God first declares his love and his commitment to his people. He renews his oath and his covenant of love with them. Isn't that what a husband says? My delight is in her. And then he rejoices in the second part of verse five, and he delights in his people. The picture of marriage, that, the two aspects of the, the picture of marriage that are highlighted in the illustration then are commitment and delight. commitment and delight. And how encouraging that is for us. God is committed to us as His people. His zeal for us means that He will not rest until he makes us the pure and spotless bride that He desires us to be. And that's good news because only he can do that. We cannot purify ourselves. Our only hope of salvation is the work of the Lord on our behalf, sending Jesus to die so that through faith in his substitutionary death, we can be forgiven and we can be made pure. God is committed to us and God delights in us. God delights in us the way that a a husband delights in his bride. God smiles like a groom waiting at the altar. God is is thrilled like a husband on his wedding night. We, his people, fill him with joy. The deepest joy and the deepest relationship that we know as human beings is what God uses to describe the commitment and the love and the delight that he has in us as his people. In our hearts, because of our weaknesses and our unfaithfulness, because of the lies of the world, the flesh and the devil, we often sense that we are forsaken and we are desolate. You ever feel that way? That the Lord has forsaken you or that you produce no good fruit in your life? We believe those names. We believe we're forsaken. We believe we are are desolate. We live into that reality. But we who are God's children through faith in Jesus, could we live into our new name? Could we allow ourselves to be shaped by the fact that God in Christ is eternally committed to us and that he delights fully in us? To be loved in that way and to believe that we are loved in that way, that's, that's life-changing. And we see some of the ways that we, can be, that we can and will be changed. If verses one through five focus on God's zeal for his people, then verses six through nine emphasize the response of the Lord's people, The response of the Lord's people is what we see in verses six through nine. And the response of the Lord's people is to watch and pray, verses six through seven, and to do so in light of the Lord's covenant faithfulness, verses eight through nine. Let's first think on this call to to watch and pray. The Lord says that he has put watchmen, in verse six, all around the city of Jerusalem. And these watchmen are there all day and all night. That's what good watchmen do, right? You need to be there 24-7 watching. And we're told that they are are never silent. They, They do not rest and they give the Lord no rest. Isn't that an interesting phrase there? Take no rest, it says at the end of verse six. And then verse seven, and give him, give the Lord no rest. They don't rest and they don't give the Lord any rest. And the work that these watchmen do is They are praying. Their work is to pray for God's salvation to come in its fullness. As I thought about that, I thought this is the task that was taken up by Simeon and Anna in the temple as they waited for the Messiah's arrival. In Luke 2, after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph brought him to the temple to be presented for the Lord, and we're told this in Luke 2, 25-26. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Simeon. Simeon was waiting for the Messiah, praying for the consolation, the comfort, Isaiah 40, of Israel that Isaiah spoke of. And then one morning he found that He was holding the one that he had been praying for. Anna was there in the temple too. Anna, the the 84-year-old widow. Can you see Anna? This 84-year-old widow who we are told did not depart the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. She sounds like a watchman from Isaiah 62, doesn't she? I think Simeon and Anna together capture the spirit of these watchmen and they call us to watch and to pray without ceasing as we wait for the fullness of of the new Jerusalem to come. As we've said, Jesus the Messiah has come in his first advent and we rejoice at that truth. But we also pray, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come and bring the fullness of Zion. Bring it in small ways here and now as you save the lost and work through us and bring it completely as you come to fill the world with righteousness. As we enter into Christmas, could we this Christmas not only celebrate the first coming of Jesus, but find ourselves waiting, watching, and praying for his coming kingdom? It's hard to watch and pray. It's hard not to fall asleep like the disciples did in Gethsemane. And yet in our weakness, we can hear these words from Jesus in Luke 18. Jesus was the master storyteller, and he tells this beautiful story. And listen to verse 1, why he told it. To the contrary, we find in verses 8 and 9 of Isaiah 62 that the Lord has sworn by himself and has sworn by his mighty arm that we, his people, will not be overrun by our enemies, that we will one day taste all of the glories of salvation. So we, therefore, can pray with confidence that our God is not an unjust judge. He is a just and a righteous and a good judge. He is a mighty savior. He is one who has sworn by himself to save us. He delights in us, and so, of course, he will listen to us. May we hear that question of Luke 18, 8. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And might we answer, yes, Lord, may I be the, if I'm the only one, make me one who is faithful to watch and to pray until your coming. Let, be, let, us, let us be the, the Simeons and the Annas of this time, watching and praying for the return of Jesus and for the fullness of the kingdom praying day and night that God's kingdom would come and that his will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven until the, until the day that heaven is on earth as the Lord and the new Jerusalem come to be among us and there is no more night. We can pray knowing that as surely as Jesus has come to save us, he will come again. And so now we come to verses 10 through 12, which... I don't have a very great title for those verses, they're just a summary of Zion and her people. Uh, a summary of Zion and her people that conclude verses uh, 61, uh, or 60, 62, 60, 61 and 62, these three pictures, this, these three verses form the conclusion. They function sort of as a review of all of the images that we've seen in those chapters. David Jackman writes the, the theological appeal of this whole section is to put our Babylon's meaning all the ways and attitudes of the world and rebellion against its creator, creator, put our Babylons behind us to move from the city of destruction to the city no longer deserted by the lifelong journey along the highway to Zion. The image there in verse 10 uh, is of the exiles fleeing Babylon and returning to Jerusalem. And it's again used to, to point us to the day when all of God's people will leave behind this world of darkness, and death and enter into the wide open gates of the city of Zion. We hear the words of Isaiah 52, 11 in our ears, depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. We are to leave Babylon, we are to leave our rebellion against the Lord. And the way is prepared just as it was prepared before the coming of Jesus. We remember John the Baptist, how he fulfilled that prophecy of Isaiah 40, verses three through five, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall shall be lifted up and every mountain shall be made, and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so too, in the last day, the way is cleared, for God's people to enter into the city. A new highway is built, perfectly paved, ready for us with no obstructions. And those who enter the city are made up of all nations. Verse 11 says, this salvation is declared to the ends of the earth. All who will repent and believe are invited into the open gates of the new Jerusalem and they come streaming in. And we see in this picture that Jesus the Messiah is ushering his people. Did you see that in in um, verse 11, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. The Messiah is almost behind his people, ushering them in to this city. I, I like that turn of phrase there. It says, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him. Salvation is a person and salvation is Jesus. And his reward, the reward of his salvation, his recompense, is also a people. It's the Lord's people. Salvation is a person and the reward of his salvation is a people that he is bringing in to Zion. We who are God's people then are given an even longer name in verse 12 than the one that we had before. We are called there in those verses and, and kids... Uh, Sarah Elizabeth, put that on your sheet where you can fill in those names and unscramble those so you can see the name that the Lord has given us. It's a long name, and it says, first of all, that we are a holy people, a holy people. We finally and fully will reflect the perfection of the one who has saved us. We are redeemed of the Lord, the, the redeemed of the Lord, like, like Ruth we are loved and we are purchased by our God, and we are made his dearly loved bride. We are called sought out. The Lord has not settled for us as his bride. Rather, he came looking for us. He came looking for we who were unloving and unfaithful, yet he still came looking for us, just like Hosea went looking for his unfaithful wife, Gomer. And we're a city not forsaken. As the Lord says through the hymn writer, the soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell, should endeavor to shake. I, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Never forsake us. Brothers and sisters, God has given us a new name. He's called us to define ourselves by who he says we are, not by what anyone else says that we are. So child of God, this is, your na- this is your new name. My delight is in her. Married, the holy people, the redeemed, sought out, a city not forsaken. What if we wore that name tag every day? be a long name tag. My name is, I don't know how you'd fit it all on there. Uh, what if we found though some creative way, some practical way to remind ourselves that this is who we really are. That if you took this name and, and you posted it somewhere, all these, these six phrases that say, this is who you are. I don't know how you wanna do it, find a way to do it, <laughs> to remind yourself what your name is. <laughs> If you can imagine forgetting your name, but sometimes we do, we forget that this is who we are, but however we do it, just think about how we might be changed if we declared to our souls every day and every moment of every day, this is who I am. And then we sought to live out by God's spirit, the reality of this name. But we said, my name is my delight is in her. And we sought to walk in ways that delight the Lord because that's what my name is. I want to live into my name and my name is the Lord delights in her. So I'm going to live in a way that delights the Lord. We sought to be faithful and committed to Christ because that's my name. My name is married. I am committed to the Lord and to him alone. We started to pursue holiness in our lives. We say no to sin because my my name isn't sinful. We are not called the sinful people. We are called the holy people. And suddenly we start to see God's Spirit work who he has made us and who he is making us to be, working that out in our lives. We remind ourselves that the Lord has purchased and redeemed us, that we are no longer slaves to sin and to self. And we say, no, that's not who I am. I am a redeemed one. We reject the lie that we are rejected. And we remember that we are God's sought out people, that he has left heaven itself to die and to make us his own. That's what my name is. And we're reminded that he will never forsake us, that everyone else in this world might leave us high and dry, but the Lord will never forsake his children up to the bitter end. So let's be those who pray for God's kingdom to come. Let's be the Simeons and the Annas of this generation who are waiting or praying, Lord, let your kingdom come and let your will be done who are praying for it and then acting in ways that, that show the kingdom is here and show that the kingdom is coming. And let's also be those who remember what our name is, that remember who we are in Christ and that we would live into the reality of that glorious name to the praise of God's glorious grace. Could I remind you what your name is one more time? This is your name. My delight is in her. Married, the holy people, the redeemed, sought out, a city not forsaken. Would you join me in a moment of silence as we reflect on God's word, and then I'll close us in prayer in a moment. Father, it's so hard sometimes to remember what our name is. We get trapped into thinking that we are what the world says about us, or we are what our sin says about us, or what we even tell ourselves we are. But Lord, help us to listen to your word and to your spirit who says that this is what our name is if we are in Christ. Lord, help us to know our name and to live in the reality of it. By your spirit, Lord, would you make us more into your image. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.